Greetings, Raise Community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Kelly DiGregorio, who is the Vice President of Institutional Advancement at Boston College High School and longtime friend of Evertrue. And uh, despite that, I know I'm going to learn new things about you, Kelly. So welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to uh, great to be with you this morning. Well, we have had a lot of fun uh, with recent guests just learning about uh, your educational journey. And so I would like to start by asking you to take me back to your junior year of high school. Who was that Kelly? What was she into? And what led her to Hamilton College and a little stint in Rome? Uh, that's funny. Uh, yeah. So what I was into was probably Duran Duran. I, you know, I don't know. It was the 80s. Favorite, favorite Duran Duran <laughs> song? I mean, Ordinary World, Hungry Life. I'm Wolf. still a tiny bit into them, to be All right. honest with you. And, and uh, uh, yeah, so I, I actually grew up in the Berkshires um, here in Massachusetts in Williamstown. And um, uh, funnily enough, ended up at, at Hamilton, which is very similar to Williams College, you know, where I grew up. Uh and um, loved that experience and uh, started my career actually in New York in, in publishing. Um, tell, and, me, and tell me more about just the decision to go to Hamilton yeah, sure. and some of the, you know, highlights when you, you, were you super involved? Were you, you know, just into Duran Duran? Like what was the, what was the mix? <laughs> Um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, really, uh, just a, a feeling when I walked on campus, it felt right. It felt good. Um, and there's probably some familiarity having grown up in a college town with a sort of a small liberal arts college. Uh, so, uh, but it just, it, it was that feeling of, um, community that I really liked about Hamilton. And, uh, so I, I'm, I wasn't a, a sports star or anything like that at, at school. I was a disc jockey for four years at the radio station so highlight highlight of your 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 dj career what was yeah. the highlight uh, well i think the highlight was going to a really sweaty rem show uh and, and you know uh, broadcasting from there we remember those were like the big bands used to come to the college campuses i don't know if they still do that or not but but um but yeah we had a lot of fun uh we had a lot of fun doing that and i you know the late night uh late night radio show in the basement of of uh of the building and it was uh, just a blast we had a good time very cool and so um and you did a little stint in uh in rome is that right absolutely yeah we uh i was interested in learning italian and um i also was um i was an english major and then i minored in studio art and did a lot of art history too so i did uh, temple university's program in rome uh, for the junior semester um, with a couple of friends actually from, from Hamilton. And uh, we, it was such a wonderful um, experience. We lived right near the, uh, right near St. Peter's and, uh, you know, used to just go and hang out in St. Peter's Square and have a, have a beer and, and uh, enjoy the, the atmosphere. Um, and also got to go to a lot of working artist uh, studios through the program. So uh, it was it was pretty excellent. By the time I left, I was actually dreaming in Italian. So that was that was really good. I don't I unfortunately uh, hasn't stuck with me so much. But uh, one of these days it's on the bucket list to uh, to be fluent again. And uh, that's that's something I'm uh, committed to doing. Io parlo un po' d'italiano. Italiano. Wait, see? 
Yeah, it's uh, uh, very Poe for me. <laughs> so, uh, who's your favorite like artist, or what was the type of art that you were maybe most into then, or maybe now? Um, yes, I'm really interested in contemporary um, artists, in particular uh, uh, photography. Um, and I don't have a favorite right now. There, there's a, a couple of really great online resources, though, for um, people who uh, want to collect or start collecting art um, and maybe, you know, don't have the resources to go to Sotheby's or Christie's or mm -hmm. uh, and and do the big time art collecting, but that um, you, you can find emerging artists easier than ever before uh, right now. Thanks. Uh, thanks to the internet. So, uh, so like, what are, what like are, Tap and Collective and, and, okay. and others have um, really great advice and, um, and let you kind of uh, buy what you like without uh, breaking the bank. And, and these are emerging artists who might one day be um, good investments uh, for you. So that's, so that's been a lot of fun. Love it. It sounds almost like the way SoundCloud has helped, you know, new artists musically get discovered the same sort of ecosystem emerging for, for uh, uh, different types of art. I love Absolutely. it. And so you, you had a, such a classic liberal arts experience at Hamilton. Mm -hmm. uh, did you know what you wanted to do right out of college and absolutely and, and did, i wanted yeah. to be in publishing uh wow. yeah so that's uh and that's what i did i worked in the marketing department at william morrow um in the children's book uh department and i just i loved it uh, but my salary was seventeen thousand dollars a year at the time and uh didn't really love being um, being on a shoestring living in Manhattan wasn't wasn't uh, wasn't that great so but I loved the work I loved the team and and the people um, and, and yeah so that that was uh, something that I had always wanted to do uh, and and went and and did it and and uh, you know had there been uh, better uh you know a better maybe faster track up to a livable wage that would have uh, maybe i'd be there still but um but decided to come back to boston where i had a lot of uh connections and friends and and family um of course in this area and uh when i did that i started looking there were a couple of publishing houses at the time in boston um started looking there but then expanded my uh circle a little bit and ended up doing a lot of informational interviews. One of them was at Harvard Law School um, and uh, took a job there in their annual fund. And that's when the, that's when my path changed. And did you know at that point, Kelly, what the annual fund was? I mean, growing up in Williamstown, there's obviously a lot of philanthropy there and, and at Hamilton, perhaps you got exposed to it. But when did you realize that this business of advancement was a business? Um, it was it was while I was at Harvard. I had only the vaguest idea of, of, of philanthropy as a profession um, before before I got there. Um, and that was um, under Scott Nichols team at the time who just you know recently retired yep. from BU. Uh, and the team was a highly functioning um team which felt great and that's what I've tried to look for throughout the rest of my career and tried to replicate um, when I became in a position to build my own team. 
So you were at Harvard Law School at a time when, I mean, tell me a little bit about Scott. And I feel like the backdrop at that time was that, you know, every day John Grisham was releasing a new book about somebody who went to Harvard Law School and then, you know, hit it big at a, at a big law firm. But um, just what was the, uh, the experience working with Scott, who's been an awesome uh, longtime friend of Evertrue's, and I'll make sure to share this episode with him. That's funny. Well, I was a peon at the time, you know, staff assistant. So, uh, so I didn't, I wasn't out there with the high flyers, uh, uh, but it was, um, what was great about it was that, you know, I, I did feel like I was being exposed to and learning from the best um, in the in the business, or you know, one of the best at the time. The it, it's just funny to think about now. We named a a building, um, and and it was a three million dollar gift, and it was such a big deal. And that was, uh, you know, but it would just felt uh, like I was learning how to do things the right way, and. Um, you could just kind of tell everybody there was such a pro uh, and that um, and then was striving for for excellence, but also um, just kind of having a ball while we were doing it. Oops, my lights just went out. Um, so All good. that was, uh, you know, I'm still and I'm still in contact with kind of a lot of those folks later today. In fact, one of my uh, colleagues at the law school um, introduced me to my now husband uh, during that time. So that's, you know, I owe Harvard Law School an awful lot. I love that. And so um, neat experience there, just learning the ropes, understanding that this is a business. Did you, did you love it right away? I mean, did you like it? When did you start to think, whoa, this is not only, you know, I, I was so passionate and focused on publishing coming out of college, I sort of stumbled into this space and this could be it for me. Yeah, it was, you know, really leveraged my uh, communications skills, which is, you know, really why what I did in college and what I was good at. And that, um, you know, it feels good when you are uh, playing to your strengths. And so it used a lot of those. And then, you know, I wasn't in, um, I wasn't doing direct solicitations or anything like that. I was doing the annual fund mailings and, and, you know, uh, coordinating publications for the, for the leadership gift society at the time. And, um, so that it just kind of opened my eyes to say, well, you can use these skills in other, you know, fields outside of publishing. And that was um, an eye opener. So, uh, you know, then much later, um, not that much later, but later in my career, you know, when I started being in a position to work with boards and to, uh, you know, do direct solicitation and to kind of build those relationships over time, um, I really enjoyed that part of the job too. And that was, it was kind of a different sort of communication um, that, you know, much more direct face-to-face -face communication and, and uh, that was very satisfying too. And tell me about after Harvard Law School, um, I know ultimately there was a move to Florida, but um, maybe what, what was your, your next step? Yeah, that's so we, uh, my now husband, uh, I had an opportunity to take over a family business in Florida. And um, at the time, we had a brief, I don't know why, we thought we were going to go live off the land or something in Vermont. And so we, I think we lasted nine months uh, in, in um, 
uh, kind of the middle of nowhere, Vermont, but uh, we were up there, it was snowing, it was April 23rd, and and uh, my husband said, hey, let's let's uh, go to Florida and take over this business. I said, yeah, that sounds pretty good. It's snowing right now, and it's late April, so I think that sounds fine. So, um, so we ended up in Florida, uh, where I uh, worked I, at the community hospital system uh, that was at the time called Martin Memorial Health System, and it has since been uh, uh, bought by the Cleveland Clinic as part of their Florida wow. expansion. So we were two hospitals then and built a third hospital um, while I was uh, there. I think I was there for 13 or 14 years at, um, at the hospital. And so that was probably the real transition into direct fundraising, you know, one-on-one face-to-face versus the broader based uh, annual fund work. And I'm just curious when you think about some of those early experiences, um, you know, obviously a different audience than Harvard Law School alumni um, and everything from trying to identify a prospect to book a visit, uh, you know, and, and do a solicitation and stewardship and all of that. But were there any memories with some of those early donors that you recall where uh, things either went really well or poorly, uh, which is okay too. Uh, you know, it, 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 people ask me a lot, actually, having been in healthcare most of my career and then coming back to education, people ask me a lot, is it easier to, to raise money at BC High um, from from the hospital world? And and I think that it depends a lot on, on the circumstances. Now, when I was at Martin Memorial, we were the community hospital. So um, it was an interesting, um, com- the community was interesting because the vast majority of, of uh, people with the capacity to make major gifts were seasonal residents. And so, you know, they would not necessarily have a relationship with a doctor at the hospital uh, because their uh, philosophy was, well, if I get really sick, I'm going to go back up to New York. I'm going to go back up to Boston. I'm not going to go to see a doctor here. So, but what happened was because they're older in South Florida, you know, eventually they did end up at at, uh, coming through uh, our doors at the hospital. So, um, so the, and the community aspect of a community hospital is quite different from say an academic medical center. So the community hospital, you know, raising raising the level of care benefits everybody in the community, whether you own a business and your employees go get their healthcare there. I mean, everybody, uh, we were the only game in town as far as where people, you know, got their healthcare. And so that, um, uh, while it wasn't uh, quite the same, you know, at BC High, when I call an alum, they, they love the school so much. They want to talk about the school. I like, so I could get visits, you know, all day long here. That is not a problem. When you call somebody about their healthcare, you know, there's a little bit more of an arm's length or a little bit, um, it's not quite as, uh, I guess, um, sometimes they're not quite as enthusiastic right in the beginning about, oh yeah, I want to talk about how I was, you know, really sick. And then, and then, um, and then you took care of me. And, and, you know, so that door sometimes took a little bit longer to open. Um, Once you got there, it was very powerful um, in the same way that um, at BC High, it's very powerful because our alumni 
credit the school most often with the, the human being they became later. Um, not necessarily their career, although that plays into it, but it's the kind of person that they are at that, that they feel the school has formed. So it's, it's you know, the paths were a little different, um, but the ultimate result could be very powerful either way. We talk a lot about the importance of polite persistence uh, in the world of fundraising. And, you know, I'm curious if you have examples over your career where maybe uh, it was the opposite experience of BC High, where they weren't just thrilled to hear from you necessarily, but with the right polite persistence or positioning or relationship building, you're able to maybe move somebody from skeptic to, um, to supporter. I mean, how, how often has that uh, happened? Um, you know, I think it's, it's not something I've, I've tracked over my career, but, but uh, actually I'm having a, a conversation right now where it's becoming apparent that the right people need to be involved in the conversation. And that's not always the person that you talk to originally. So, uh, so I remember in, in Florida, for example, we, um, you know, I worked with an older couple um, and, and as a, as a generational um, thing that it was the husband, you know, was in charge, even though the, the wife had had a pretty high powered uh, career in the arts herself, and, but the, um, she deferred to her husband and, and, you know, we were talking about a big seven figure gift uh, for the hospital and he was just, uh, he was resistant. He just, there was something that he was, you could just tell he was kind of shut, shut down to it. Um, so, what we ended up doing, and I was pretty close with the, the wife. Um, so I ended up meeting with the wife and, and uh, Joan said to me, she said, I really want, I really want him to make this gift. And she said, so, you know, so we never talked, <laughs> but I'm going to, like, I'm going to talk to you about now what what uh, his thinking is and why you might be getting this kind of resistance. She's like, let's just, he, he's really, he's a depression baby and he's nervous about um, uh, losing control of any of his assets. Uh, you know, he just has that mindset. And so if, you know, if you can show him a way where he can just uh, move assets from one place to another, and he still feels like they're generating income, you know, I think he would be really interested in that. I said, well, we could talk, let's talk about a charitable gift annuity. And she, and I was telling her about that. And she said, well, that sounds, you're just repositioning your assets. She said, that's what you need to do. So, so then, you know, so Joan helped me with this strategy and, um, but she said, but you can't ever tell him that we had this conversation. So, uh, it, it reminds me of the big fat Greek wedding where it's the neck turning the head. Do you remember that? <laughs> so, uh, so it was the head, but uh, Joan was the neck and, uh, and they ended up doing, I think it was a $2 million charitable gift. annuity. it's a huge charitable gift annuity that they did. And, and then later he left a um, eight figure estate gift to the hospital. So it was a good lesson for me in not only that polite, persistence but are you talking to the right person um and not making assumptions about about who has the influence to make a gift happen 
in the uh, in the sales world, we'll talk sometimes about the decision making unit, right? Mm -hmm. Who's the you know, it's not always just one decision maker. Who's the decision making unit? And then how do you understand hey. the um, competing priorities or different perspectives? And it can yeah. be, you know, sometimes um, you might think that because you've got a great relationship, let's say with the vice president of advancement, that it's all, you know, roses. But then if there are uh, other folks in the team who don't understand or skeptical or detractors, um, it's it's just always a reminder of trying to, you know, understand who those very key influencers could be when you're not in the room. And it sounds Absolutely. like the same thing can apply yeah. uh, in the philanthropy, even though maybe it's like, you know, it's not going to be a, a leadership team necessarily making a philanthropic decision, but husband, wife or children or, uh, yeah. or other, you know, influencers maybe are, are more um, influential than we sometimes realize. Yeah. And how you approach that conversation is really important. I've been, and I have also gone down in flames, you know, there too. Like I, one, I have remember another uh, situation where I was soliciting, um, we had a, a hospital world, you know, we had a big gala um, every year and raised over a million dollars every year with this gala. And the, so the chairmanship of the gala was really uh, important and prestigious position and I was recruiting um, somebody to be the chair of the gala and she was uh, you know she'd had a huge career in, in investment banking and um, and she'd been on the committee and so I thought oh, this is a slam dunk right and 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 during that conversation you know I solicited her for a, a major gift and as a as a gala sponsorship and and um, I made a huge mistake and, and, but it was something that I always did. Um, I always said, are there, I said, you know, is this something that we would want to get together with you and, uh, and Tony, her husband about, or because I would do that with a, a man too, to say, should we get together with you and Judy to talk about this? Oh, and that just crashed big time. She was so angry with me that I would assume, uh, or she thought that I was assuming that she needed to ask her husband for permission to, to make this gift. And, um, oh boy, that blew up big time in my face. Uh, so that was, you know, that's a, that was a really good lesson of how, how do you approach this and, and ask a couple more questions first before, uh, you know, you get to that point. And, and now I tend to ask, things like, how do you tell me about how you make your philanthropic decisions and kind of leave that door open before, um, before suggesting a person or, or people to, to involve, uh, you know, I try to tease that out instead of, uh, you know, coming through like a bull in a China shop. Right. Well, I mean, it's the same, you know, we might be talking to an enthusiastic uh, potential partner um, and they're, you know, they're gung ho, but then we'll often sort of say, well, shouldn't we get this in front of your general counsel? Or typically there'd be an IT review where we'd wanna make sure that we go through a security assessment. And, um, you know, so I guess we're always trying to sort of identify the blockers and then try to proactively guide the buyer to help get through some of those blockers. And it sounds like you were trying to do the same thing and sort of identifying, you know, okay, why might this not happen? Well, if there's a spouse who would have a differing opinion, uh, like you experienced uh, in the other example in Florida, then let's try to head that off at the pass or hit it head on. But at the same time, that can really um, offend somebody if there isn't a spouse that needs to be involved. Right, right. Uh, yeah. So you do, you do have to be careful. And, and, you know, and sometimes it's something people haven't really thought about, especially if it's their first time out of the gate with a big gift. Um, you know, maybe they, 
haven't they, they don't have a routine when it comes to making right. a, a major investment um and so you know it's something that it takes some work to get to how what's comfortable for them got it so you had a really good run in florida no mm-hmm. winters to worry about yeah uh, that was okay and then you're like you know what let's head back for some winter action so tell me about the decision to come to the back to the northeast and uh, some of the highlights from your time at Brigham and Women's. Yeah, sure. Well, we, um, uh, our son was eight years old at the time when we, we came back and, uh, we, my husband's also from the New England area and we really felt strongly that we wanted him to grow up, you know, in a similar way that, that we did. Um, and in particular go to school here. Uh, so, uh, so that was something we had our eye on and um, I had been participating um, um, for years in the Association for Healthcare Philanthropy and their con- conferences and, um, and teaching, et cetera. And uh, uh, I had done a, a session in Boston um, with a, a great colleague from who was at the Brigham and we did a panel and brought some of our big donors to the panel and, and at a, you know, big conference in Boston and that worked out great. So, and I, so I, you know, I just called, I started calling around people I still knew in, in Boston uh, and, and some of the old gang from, from Harvard law school, but it ended up being this, uh, this friend from, from the Brigham who said, Hey, we're, you know, we're in a campaign, we're staffing up, um, uh, you should come up here. And, and so I was um, recruited to the, to the Brigham to um, do fundraising for cancer, uh, cancer care and um, uh, women's health. And then also later on that shifted to um, the neonatal uh, program, which of course is the Brigham's you know, flagship um, program. Everybody in Boston had their, had their baby at uh, Brigham and Women's. Tell me about that role. My understanding is you served as AVP of development. And so you had a team that you were managing. Um, and I do feel like in the advancement world broadly, and, you know, certainly in healthcare as well, it seems like, I mean, in the, you know, in, in the sales and marketing world, I think there tends to be clearer delineation of either, you know, you're a manager or you're a seller. And it feels like that role tends to be more blended always in higher ed, where even, I mean, I talked to a senior vice president at a large public university yesterday who still manages a principal gift portfolio. And so I'm curious when you're in that role at at Brigham's, how much of your time was leading that team and helping that team work their portfolios, develop strategies, get through blockers, et cetera, versus having your own portfolio as well. It always feels like a very overwhelming blend of duties, but for whatever reason, it's sort of just become the, the standard in this space. Yeah. If somebody has the magic number of percentages, I wish they would share it with me. Cause I still don't feel like I, you know, some days I feel uh, uh, that I still don't have that right. Um, and it's kind of, I would say it's kind of like being a working parent, you know, on, on days when you feel like you're just killing it at work, you're, you're, and you, you come home and you're like, oh, we have no groceries, <laughs> you know? And then uh, on days when you feel really like you're being there for your family, um, and then you miss a big meeting at work. So it's almost, uh, it, it's, it's what I, what I really have, um, what's helped me greatly is to, 
um, know that I'm doing a good enough job uh, in both uh, of those arenas, home and work. And, and if I feel like I'm doing a good enough job, then for me, that's, that's where I want to be. Uh, I don't have to be perfect. And letting go of that idea of, of that uh, perfection as a manager and also perfection as a frontline fundraiser, that's helped me immensely to just let that go. That wasn't serving me at all to, to try to be perfection in both of those arenas. So, um, so I do, I try to, you know, maintain a balance. I try to, on times when I'm, you know, right now is a good example of that time. I'm, we're, we're going into a nucleus phase of the campaign. I am out of the office a lot. I'm uh, very heavily focused on some lead gifts and recruiting our key volunteers. Um, and with that, you know, I'm not back at the ranch um, overseeing things um, so here at, at BC High. So, um, you know, so I really rely on my senior people here to check and I just check in with them. How's it going? What's the vibe? Do I need to be, you know, would it be good for me to gather everybody together? And we do a couple things that I borrowed from hospital world too, to uh, like we do a huddle twice a week. We do a team huddle uh, standing in front of the whiteboard on Monday and then Friday mornings. Um, and that's a 15 to 20 minute um, uh, chance for everybody to say that we stand up in the hallway. It's no sitting down. Uh, there's no agenda. What does the team need to know this week on Monday? Um, and then on Friday, it's what happened this week that the team needs to know about um, looking into next week. Uh, and so we had set up a huddle board and have some process improvement ideas on the huddle board as kind of a place to recognize colleagues. And, and so those kind of little tools help me feel checked in with the team when I'm really focused as a frontline fundraiser. Um, and that's when I feel best about my work is when I am um, uh, really feeling like I'm making progress for the institution on, on big gifts. So that's for me, and that's transitioned a little for me over my career. I think um, at the early days of my career, I, I felt best when I felt like I was um, getting a team that's you know firing on all, all cylinders. and. And maybe it's just because now I've done that for a long time, and and now uh, it's shifted a little bit for me. And now I feel I feel best for myself when I feel like I'm producing as an individual performer. Um, and the team's doing great too. If the team fell apart, it wouldn't feel very good either. But uh, but fortunately, if you build that high performing team, you know you have people that you can count on, and you don't always have to be there. Um, every day in everybody's face, which nobody likes anyway. So, uh, so that's for me what what um, I feel. That's when I feel like I have the best balance, uh, and that may now at this point in my career be weighted a little bit more on the frontline side. Or and I, and by frontline, I also mean stuff like board development. Um, yeah. You know th that kind of thing. It, I mean, it sounds like you're you know you're almost positioning the role as principal gift officer because that revenue generation is uniquely the thing that you can do maybe best and can really move the needle. Um, and then as long as you've got the high performing team, that sort of helps round out coverage of the giving pyramid, for example, which I know your team's been really focused on, especially right. at BC High where affinity is so high, yeah. but it, you know the gifts still don't raise themselves. And so you know, trying to personalize more one-to-one -one relationship building 
deeper into the giving pyramid while you maybe uh, spend time on the relationship building with the top, you know, 25 or 50, or I don't know how many prospects it could be that you manage, but um, it sounds like that's really the division of labor that you're focused on now. Yeah. And that's been a good balance for us. Um, And I think that, you know, what's, what's changed um, for, for this team is that focus on relationship building in, in the other parts of the, the pyramid. And, and so our annual donors, when, when I got here, you know, I would hear from time to time. Yeah. We only hear from BC high when it's June and it's time to make our annual gift. And then it says, this doesn't feel good. So that um, now that our team, you know, in partnership with, with your team is really taking that, um, cadence to build those relationships and offer some value to our alumni throughout the year um that feels uh, that feels different and and that now feels more like I can you know uh focus more of my time on those more transformational uh gift discussions tell me a little bit as it relates to a potential transformational uh gift discussion one of the things that I find just continually fascinating about this space is in almost any other sector, you've got price points, right? You've got, hey, you can have, you know, the Tesla fully loaded or the baseline Tesla. You can have the, you know, the, the alternative over here. Things have prices. And in philanthropy, our price point can go from a $5 token gift to the annual fund to $500 million, which I think Western Michigan recently received a gift at that level. So, there's really no other sector with that um, broad of a price point, if you will. Um, and I know that we've done things from an annual perspective to try to create the giving societies or to create, you know, different stretch levels for folks with, you know, hopefully some benefits or recognition associated with it. But as it relates to your work at the principal gift level, and this could be at Brigham, it could be at, at, at BC High, how do you know even the number of zeros that might be in the ballpark? And how do you really start to feel somebody out on the level of impact, the level of investment that might even be feasible? Because it's, it's possible, you know, somebody who could give a million dollars could give $2 million mm-hmm. or $5 million or 500,000. And so in the absence of maybe clear price points, how do you start to even um, narrow down what the range could be. Um, so, you know, the old adage is if you get what you ask for, you didn't ask for enough. That's, you know, that's, uh, uh, what my old boss always, always taught me, but, um, the favorite question that I use to start getting to that number is, um, tell me about what you're doing philanthropically at other places. And, and if um, the person is, is, if it's not their first rodeo, uh, making a big gift, that can be very, very telling. And that can kind of give you as a fundraiser a place to start from. And, and then that gives you, you know, you might say like, well, would you ever consider doing something at that level at BC High? Or would you ever consider and- doubling that level at BC High? So that can be very helpful. Um, not so much when somebody's never done it before. Tell me let's say I'm the fundraiser and you're the principal gift prospect. And I were to say that same question, you know, Kelly, tell me about your 
uh, philanthropic um, work elsewhere, what, you know, would you say what levels have you, you know, supported Brigham at, et cetera? And what are the responses? I mean, what would the response, I mean, are folks direct and willing to share or are they cagey about it or does it really just depend on the you know, It's all over the map, but I'm often very surprised about what people will tell me um, about their assets, about um, how they are uh, participating in other organizations. Um, I'm often very surprised at the level of detail. If you just sit back and stop talking, that that people will um, will share. And if you have built, you know, if you've built that relationship as a trusted advisor um, or trusted facilitator, then uh, people often feel very comfortable sharing um, levels. And and if if they don't share a level, then I also I often will go back and ask, well. Um, tell me more about the impact that you made with that gift. And, and then they may say, well, the building or what, and that can kind of give you something to that. You can then, you know, go in and find out if uh, what the amount was that way. Um, but I oftentimes will say, in fact, I'm, I'm having these conversations right now because um, we're recruiting for our leadership volunteers for an upcoming campaign. And so I've been asked like, what's the, what gift would you be looking for for me? And I, I would not, I will always say like, I don't know what this right number is for you, but I, but what I would ask is that we work together so that you make it what is for you a very significant gift. Um, and I don't usually, I know a lot of people say, well, we want BCI to be your number one, um, um, charitable priority. I'm of two minds about that. I think people who are philanthropic support many organizations and, and that's good. Uh, and, and I encourage them to, to do that. So I don't love that. Um, sort of like, you, uh, we want to be your favorite child. Right. Right. Yeah. So I don't, I don't love that, but I, I do want them to really consider and work with me to, to, figure out what for them is a very significant investment, you know, and it, um, I wouldn't say this to them, but it should hurt a little bit. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it should. It, well, it and should. that's the thing is, is how do you stretch without, you know, look, you're trying to stretch impact, right? And so that means you want donors to stretch, um, but it's a balance without wanting to, you know, turn somebody off or offend someone. And so, you know, would you ever consider something like, let's just say, uh, a scholarship is, uh, I don't know, I'm just spitballing here, but it's, uh, let's just say it's $50,000 a year. I mean, would, would you then be able to say, look, like that is the impact of one scholarship, one student uh, to support their four-year journey, let's say. Um, and we are trying to um, secure 100 of those scholarships as part of this next campaign. And I'm wondering if you could ever see yourself considering supporting a, a good portion of those, let's call it, you know, 20 scholarships. And um, could you ever see yourself supporting us at that level? And like, how do you sort of make the stretch ask or make the anchor, if you will, without making it feel like an ultimatum or, um, you know, too, too high pressure? Yeah. It's like, so I always show the donor, almost always show the donor, the whole program, the scope of the whole impact that we're trying to do. So um, I was recently meeting with a donor and we um, shared the entire 
campus master plan, vision, the entire thing. Hundred, this is a hundred million dollar vision, you know, and and within that, here's the impact you could make. So that was a lesson I really learned at um, at the Brigham because being an academic medical center and focusing um, so much on medical research and working with the um, the doctors and and the researchers who you know wanted funding for this project, it was very. It, you know, it's almost, it was almost, they were trained to write grants and get funding for Project X with a budget of Y. And when you're working with individuals, you know, what we would always try to do is put that in a, in the context of a larger program. So it's not just about Project X, but it's about this program that we're trying to do immunotherapies for prostate cancer or whatever that is. And if you can package a program and then you show somebody the entire scope of the program. Um, and you know, you know, see what they say. It's just, and, and I don't like a menu. I never like a menu. I don't ever want to show somebody a menu of, of stuff. Um, just pick one of these. Like that's not, um, I don't think that's effective. I don't think that it causes people to stretch. Um, nobody ever, you know, picks the cheapest or the most expensive bottle of wine on the menu. So like, that's, that's, uh, what I try to do is show them the whole scope. And then- You know what they pick? They pick the second cheapest second, bottle of right, wine. The second. So yeah. So if you are going to do a menu, make sure that the, the one you want them to do is the second, you know, the second from the bottom. So, um, but that's just not what I, what I do. I like to, I like to show people the whole scope of the program. And then we talk about, um, an in, you know, what an investment of what the impact they want to make within that scope. And that can open up a whole different conversation. You know, well, what about, what about this? What would this cost to do? Because I'm really excited about this. Well, that would be $10 million. And then that kind of gets the, the number out there on the table, you know, and, and getting the number on the table is often, I think, um, the hardest part of our job to make that seem non-transactional. Um, but those are some tools that I use to, to help get that number out there. You know, we're, we're always, I saw this quote, I, I, I can't remember who it was now, but it was just, I think it was on LinkedIn like yesterday. And it was said something about like, it's, we're, we're building relationships, um, but we're building relationships for a purpose. And that's the thing to, to keep in mind. You know, we are here to talk to people about their money, um, about the change that they can make in the world with their wealth. Um, and I use wealth, you know, it's all relative. So whether that's a $25 gift or $25 million gift, that's what we're doing. So we're not just building relationships for relationships sake, we are building relationships to, um, to help uh, facilitate that gift discussion. And, and you got to talk about money um, during that. So, you know, getting that number on the table is important and the way that you do it is important. Well, I also, you know, I interviewed someone yesterday who said, look, they know what we do, like they know our job. And so sometimes we can dance around it or maybe early career, you're, you're uncomfortable talking about it, but, uh, but they're, you know, they're in the meeting for a reason, even if it's a discovery visit, they know what you do. 
and if they don't, then you probably weren't clear enough in why. You yeah, yeah, so, uh, it's a good lesson to learn too. I think one of my colleagues at the hospital once said somebody thought that they were talking without being a blood donor. <laughs> so, so that's important to uh, you know positioning when you're getting that visit. I guess that would be considered in kind philanthropy. For yeah, sure. yeah. Um, so Brigham and Women's Hospital, according to LinkedIn, has thirteen thousand two hundred and forty nine employees. BCI has 220, according to LinkedIn. So not probably 100% accurate, but orders of magnitude. Um, that was a major change for you. And I'm just curious, like there are going to be folks listening who work at very large institutions, perhaps in healthcare, a bunch in the higher ed sector, um, who've probably never thought about the independent school world, the K-12 um, fundraising um, environment that you're operating in. And BC High is a unique institution with a, a particular level of, of passion uh, among the alumni community. But what are some of the biggest lessons or observations that you maybe um, wish you could share with your, uh, your yourself, you know, your first week of the job, for example? Yeah, well, you know, I, I didn't set out to move from academic medicine to um, K through 12 education. In fact, I thought I would spend my whole career in, in healthcare. Um, however, the things that I was looking for at a certain point in my career became less about industry and more about, you know, um, I, was, I was looking for uh, really productive and effective partnership with the president of an institution. That was one thing that, that I had to have in, in the next um, iteration of my career. Um, I wanted to uh, feel really good about the mission of the institution. That's, you know, maybe that's a given for everybody, but it was something I was thinking about. And, um, but it, and, and that, became not healthcare, um, but that was the second consideration. And the, the third, um, I, I guess there were three considerations for me. The third was really um, community, both in the sense that it was important to me that I was somewhere that had that same kind of connectivity to the city of Boston that um, the Brigham did. I didn't wanna lose that piece of it, um, but also community, um, within the institution, and that um, can translate, it doesn't have to, but it can also translate to a smaller um, organization. So once I really dis discerned, um, you know, what was really important to me in the next uh, move in my career, it became much less about uh, industry and, and much more about those um, those three elements and BC High had all of those for me. So, um, and I do like the kind of broad um, approach that we can have here in smaller team. You know, we have at any given time, we'd have, you know, we'll have here 10 to 13 people on my team and that, um, but you know, when you're at a really large institution, sometimes you don't get that breadth of influence and maybe you, um, if somebody becomes the planned giving donor, maybe that's, maybe you have to have them talk to somebody else and you, you know, you don't do that. So I, that didn't, the narrow focus uh, for me, I wasn't as um, 
appealing as having sort of a broader influence. So, but those were the three, those were the three things I was looking for and BC High really satisfied those. So once I could get out of that space of, oh, I have to stay in healthcare and really decide what was important to me, then, um, then when I came here, you know, to interview, that became very obvious. There is a big vision at BC High right now. Tell me about where you see things going and it's gotta be, um, it's got to be pretty, I don't know, maybe even humbling, overwhelming to be talking through the $100 million, you know, master plan, uh, the big vision, and having an understanding of what kind of transformation comes along with that and how the whole uh, uh, community can be reshaped by that level of philanthropic support. Yeah, and I think, you know, um, I, I really think BC High is kind of at an inflection point and, and uh, when I was just getting to know the school, um, you know, the mission, BCI was founded to educate the sons of um, Irish immigrants at the time um, in 1863 when, when, you know, people had signs in their windows saying no Irish. Uh, so that connectivity with the, the mission and the city um, hasn't changed uh, you know, over time. And so, and the city, but this, what has changed is the city. And especially with what's going on um, around us physically here um, in the, we're in the Columbia Point area. We are in Dorchester in a very urban environment in Boston. And that is um, the potential for partnerships with some of our neighbors as uh, you know, there's a lot of exciting development going on right around us. We, and we abut the campus of UMass Boston. Um, we have the Kennedy Institute here. Like it, there's a lot of uh, potential partnerships that are, that are percolating um, for our programs. And, and then we also, and I think the new leadership at um, BC High is obviously an opportunity to look forward um, and really do some things differently. Like, for example, um, we've established five centers of human excellence. Um, and, and one of those is the Shield Center for Innovation. We have the Mike White Center for Leadership, the um, Larry Hyde Center for Global Education, Center for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and a Center for Ignatian Identity. Um, and that's organized in a way that's a, more like a college than, than a high school. So these opportunities do kind of change the way we educate um, kids and also the opportunities that exist in the city uh, to bring the city to us and to have our students go out into the city is, um, you know, it's pretty cool. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's, it's fun to think about where, um, where we're going to go in the next 10 years. Uh, and, and I think that uh, BC High is going to uh, really um, kind of rise to the, to, to the top in terms of um, our position as a, as a, you know, signature Boston institution. Love that. So well said. And one final um, point I was just going to ask about is it feels like you've really embraced uh, LinkedIn in, in a more holistic way than um, I think can still be common among, among advancement leadership, which is changing, but it still feels like there's a long way to go. Um, did something click for you or, or I'm just curious to get your perspective on that platform and um, how you use it in your role, both um, operationally leading the team, but also in your one-on-one -on -one relationship building? 
Yeah, we, well, what happened was we started having a lot of success reaching alumni through LinkedIn, like that when they weren't responding to email or phone call, um, they respond to a LinkedIn message. So that's what was very practical. All of a sudden we just realized, hey, we guys are getting back to us when we do this. And uh, so that is now very much part of our, you know, regular practice um, and, and, I think we'll start doing that first now in a lot of cases, yeah. instead of wasting time with emails and, and phone calls that nobody answers, like, well, let's just go right to LinkedIn and start there. And that's been very, very successful for us. Um, you know, people that we've struggled to reach or that, and especially people that we don't have an email for, like, I don't know about our peer schools, but for us, there's these whole decades where um, kind of before People had a personal email before they had a cell phone that could follow them forever. You know, half the time we're still sending stuff to their parents' house. <laughs> so, uh, so in that, uh, you know, in that situation, what are you going to do? Well, you can reach them on LinkedIn and that's, that's been highly effective for us. So now we start there a lot of the time. Yeah. I love it because it's just amazing how much we, we still see folks trying to, um, you know, do email appends or address appends. And I mean, even I think in case standards to be considered a solicitable alumni or alumnus or alumna, the, I think the standard is still, do you have a mailing address or a phone number or an email? And yet at the same time, so many of the people who are lost alumni are more findable than ever before, yet the sector hasn't really still come to fully appreciate the sort of self-reported nature of LinkedIn, the um, fact that, you know, the email address behind the LinkedIn profile will change, but the profile itself will, will persist. And so we obviously are doing a lot of work just on that space as well, because I think, you know, instead of LinkedIn being an afterthought, or if the email or the phone number or the address is out of date, then go there, start there. And what some folks listening, probably the folks listening are, are more progressive on that front, but um, but it still seems like there's a long way to go. You know, and I also think it positions us as professionals and, and, you know, LinkedIn is a professional space and people are now very accustomed to making professional connections on, on LinkedIn. And so um, it's less, it's moving sort of out of that social space into a professional space. And I think that um, starts the relationship off on the right foot uh, for, for a professional fundraiser. Well, I'd encourage everybody listening to look up Kelly on LinkedIn, follow her. You can see uh, the posts that she's sharing, how she's engaging with her audience. It can be, I think, a great way even to uh, keep yourself top of mind with some of those supporters, you know, some of the donors that you follow, right? I can see you're liking their content. You're sharing some of the things that they're sharing. And it's just a great way to um, amplify the, the message of, of BC High while, you know, building your personal um, brand and relationship as well. Um, I would also just maybe in conclusion, you know, we'll sometimes ask our guests, are you hiring? And at some, you know, large, large shops that can be uh, pretty significant. I would imagine, um, you know, on that 10 to 13 team uh, level that maybe there's not going to be as much aggressive hiring, but um, maybe we can make it about BC high, but just in general, why should folks potentially consider uh, working in a smaller environment, maybe um, exploring the independent school world if they've ever been, uh, on the fence or, or uh, have considered it? Yeah, I think connection to mission um, and community. And by the way, I am hiring. So. All right. <laughs> See, look, I, you can't assume. 
You already taught me that on this episode and I still assume. So tell me about what you're hiring for. Yeah, so I'm hiring for a senior director of campaign and major gifts who's really going to be the the person running the campaign. Um, uh, And then uh, also will be shortly thereafter hiring for a major gift officer um, or director of major gifts. So staffing up for us, that's the version of staffing up for a campaign also with a, with a campaign coordinator who we already have hired. So um, that's that's happening right now. And I think the uh, those things that were important to me when I made this move are, are why people um, you know, should keep an open mind about what size uh, shop or sort of perceived level of, of uh, philanthropy that they'd be working on. So, um, you know, shops like ours, our, our biggest gift was we've got an eight figure gift before. And, and that's, um, so you can do real major gift philanthropy uh, in a smaller organization and that connection to mission and that community might be something that you feel um, stronger about uh, at an organization like ours. That is a compelling pitch for all of you listening. Uh, look up Kelly, get in touch. And if you've ever thought about uh, making the leap to the K-12 world, uh, there's some really special stuff happening at BC High right now. So we're at time, Kelly. Thank you, as always, for sharing perspective with me and the Evertrue team. Uh, and we're so excited to continue to partner on your journey of growth at BC High. With that, Brent signing off uh, with today's guest, Kelly Gregorio, Vice President of Institutional uh, advancement at BC High. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks a lot, Brent.